Okay, welcome back to the AEC Hive podcast, where we're talking about innovation in architecture, engineering, and construction. I'm Ralph Montague, director at ArcDocs and co-founder of the AEC Hive. I'm joined by John Egan, my fellow co-founder. John, you want to say hi to everyone? Hi, everyone. John Egan. I'm CEO at BIM Launcher and co-founder at AEC Hive. I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. We're really excited today. We're in Dallas, Texas, uh, joined by innovator, CEO, co-founder, Clifton Harness from TestFit. Clifton, it's great to have you on board and looking forward to talk to you. Do you want to give everybody just a brief background about yourself, you know, where you came from, how you got got into your business, etc.? I'm not a morning person, and I'm on my first cup of coffee, so if I'm a little rusty today, give me give me some grace. So, yeah, I'm Clifton Harness, uh, co-founder, TestFit. We are changing how buildings are initially looked at in the feasibility stage of building design. Uh, and we do that by writing uh, very robust algorithms uh, that solve simple automation problems for, for architects. It's stuff like uh, the allocation and counting of parking spaces. You know, it's amazing to me that we're still counting things manually. Uh, in this industry, we drew, uh, work on, uh, features for drawing, uh, more efficiently in the computer roads and apartment buildings and office buildings. And we're, we're really trying to affect change on commodity architecture in the, from the process side of things, as opposed to, you know, here's a better, more beautiful building. That's not really the problem in, anymore, I don't think. Uh, the problem in, in architecture is, is process. How do you speed it up? I mean, you have an interesting background because you, you were in the real estate sector and you know, then went on to do architecture. It, it's an interesting problem. Like If you think of the interaction between architects and real estate developers, you know, the developers are looking for quick answers on you know, like, what's a, what can happen on the site, what can get on the site. Whereas the architects want to spend months coming up with beautiful designs, um, and it's, is, is it where you, is that where you're sitting in, in between, trying to get to the quick answers that will right. establish right. the the, so the value com- of a property or commodity buildings? Yeah, I mean, my my background is is weird. I think in 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 a, in a sense, my dad's a real estate developer. You know, I grew up around real estate development, and I decided to go get an architecture degree. You know, I fell in love with architecture, and I believe, you know, fervently that buildings should be strategic, systemic, sustainable, beautiful, experiential, meaningful, contextual. Buildings have to do a lot of things, right? And when I got into the real estate development world, the building is only one of five different levers that, that developers have uh, when they're putting deals together. And my job uh, was to draw site plans again and again and again just to try to get all five of these levers, you know, stable at a point in time where you've got the building design statics, that's your first lever. The second one's your construction costs. The third one's your, your deal, uh, the deal structure between your LPs and your bank and who's got what interest rates. And the fourth piece being the, the actual land seller who's actually going to sell this thing. And then, of course, the fifth and most troublesome piece is, uh, or the hardest piece for private real estate development is how you interface with the city. So 
you know, those, those five levers are constantly being squeezed, uh, in order for buildings to get, you know, out of feasibility and into, into production. And honestly, like if I was going to spend 20 years of my life counting parking spaces, it would, it wouldn't have been, you know, a very useful use of my time here in the AEC industry. To a lot of architects, when you talk about algorithms and automating things, you, you, know, like you immediately see a, or a big portion of the sector's backs go up and you know, as if you, know, you can't automate architecture and you can't. <laughs> in, in a sense, but, you can, but, though, but, right? Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, so architecture, they're, they're creating algorithms all day, every day, whether or not they know it. I mean, all an algorithm is is a list of steps that you follow. You know, so for example, trying to get a plan onto a piece of paper, you know, it sounds like a pretty simple problem. Well, what what size of paper? You know, so okay, if I'm an architect and I know that it's a presentation, I'm going to start with an 11 by 17, uh, and then I'm going to work myself back, and I'm working myself back into an algorithm, right? So, what's the the scale that I need to display? Okay, it's a quarter inch. And so you, you measure how big that actually is on the piece of paper, you know, at scale. Okay. And then how do I fit it? And if you follow your list of instructions to a T every single time you lay out a new deal, you essentially are creating an algorithm. And what we have not done in architecture is capture that intelligence that goes into all of these little tasks that we do. And that's, you know, you, you kind of present a product to the industry and you run around selling it. And the essence of what we're selling is essentially captured intelligence that can just be reused again and again and again. And Revit's doing like Revit's no different. Like instead of drawing the wall with two lines of a specified dimension, you draw a center line and you can just change the wall with basically later by specifying, you know, what thickness it has and it updates in real time. It's, it's no different than an algorithm. You know, my point is that architects, you're interacting with algorithms all day, every day, whether you know it or not. Yeah. I suppose you're capturing what people probably have in their heads. And, you know, unfortunately, if somebody left the company, they'd leave with that information in their head, but you taking sort of those steps and useful knowledge out of their heads and into yeah, a program that could basically go through those steps a lot quicker than maybe a human being might do in, in terms of drawing a car park and counting the layout. Yeah, so it's a it's an interesting um, intersection I think you found as test fits. You know, where you taking these these problems, which are particularly in the early stages of projects, where you, you're trying several different schemes, as you say, to get the the right uh, the get the numbers to work, if you like, and you know a lot of that can be quite time consuming just to try these different options uh, and you know recalculate the numbers and try another option recalculate the numbers often with the promise of maybe getting a job in the future to develop that that building up i think a lot of architects are doing that sort of feasibility work almost for nothing as a as the, as the, you know the promise of getting a job not yeah. not not all not all of them but a lot of, i would imagine a lot of I, them are. So, so we, we sell our software to both architects and real estate developers. And if you ask the architects, they often will say, Oh, of course we get paid for, for all the feasibility work that we do. 
And then you ask the developers and they say, well, we've never had to pay for feasibility studies before. So when I was, when I was a young kind of startup CEO walking around trying to get feedback, you know, I heard that information and I was like, oh, there's a nasty secret in here that nobody wants to say anything about how incentives like really aren't aligned in the feasibility stage where they're both kind of lying to each other and speaking past each other. It's kind of not productive. We have a housing crisis and we're all working against each other in AEC. It is crazy. And how did you get from this idea to starting a business? Not much of a process. Like, you know, I think people think, oh, they probably like sat in a room and created a perfect pitch deck and, you know, went out and sold it to somebody, you know, and then they built the product. Like, that's the typical startup mentality. That's not really what we do, TestFit. So my, my, my co-founder, he got laid off back in 2016 from a mobile game studio. And him and I had kind of been working on this project to help me solve like problems in my job. I need software to help me solve this because I don't want to get, again, I, I don't want to keep counting parking stalls. So can you help me solve this? And he, he ended up leaving this job and he, he called me and said, I actually remember where I was sitting when he called me. I was at a taco diner uh, in Dallas. It's hilarious, but I think I'm going to work on, on this idea. Like it could turn into something, you know, while I'm, I'm searching for a job. And I think Ryan was just enthralled with, with the complexity of the problem. Building design is not simple. And he's just an engineer that's brilliant and creative. And I gave him a, a pretty hard problem to solve. And he came through with a minimum viable product. And, you know, I kind of asked him, like, so when, when, when were you going to interview for other jobs? Like, aren't you looking for gainful employment? And he's like, no, like, I, I think we could continue to do this. And so then I, you know, I had to go talk to my wife and my employer and figure out, my exit from that company and so I could help him build this thing. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that, that was kind of 2017. And then we released our initial uh, build. It was terrible. I can't believe people bought this thing in 2017. And then we just grew a small business for two years and it was making some money and, you know, I was making more money selling my software than I was working in architecture. And that's without VC investment. I mean, it, mm -hmm. like, you know, my encouragement to the, the, the innovators out there is like, you can make a lot of money innovating this industry. Like if you leave, make, make product, make service, you can make a lot of money doing it. Got venture funding uh, in early 2020 and then the COVID thing and, it happened, uh, still is happening at the time of this recording. So we've created a decentralized company. You know, we're, we're hiring the best people uh, that we can find, not the best people in Dallas. For the AEC technologists out there, like Dallas is not the is not the ground zero for AEC innovation. I mean, there's San Francisco, Boston. London, there's other cities that, that are, are much more poised for disruption. But Dallas is the, the spiritual homeland of, of modern real estate development uh, in the United States. This is where Trammell Crow is based. This is where all of all the people that uh, follow his methodology of creating value with, with buildings, you know, a lot of them are here. So mm. 
uh, well, it not make, might not make sense from a, a software engineering standpoint. Our clients are here, so. And what what would you say is? Because I think I've, I've heard you speak about this before, but the difference, like you're talking about algorithms, and you know, there's a lot of talk about generative design and computational design, and I mean, a lot of people seem to be putting effort into that. But there's this questions. Even last year, there were a lot of questions as to. How useful that is! Like, what's the difference between what you're doing and and generative design and computational design, or is there a difference, or is that what you're doing? It it is what we're doing in a sense. The academic definition of generative design is requesting a a computer system to uh, run through goals and constraints uh, with with a problem and. Where I think generative design has completely failed, like by Autodesk, by SpaceMaker, by any of these people out there, is you haven't built a constraint environment. You throw a, a three-box generator together and you ask it to optimize for views. And when I look at it, they're optimizing for something. But you know, the thing that happens when you make a really, really tall building is that your core gets bigger. Mm. Uh, you start to need more staircases, like you start to have more elevators. So there are constraint environments out there, but they're limited to, you know, one person's ability to write a very large either Grasshopper or Dynamo script. It's not very extendable. Firms don't get a whole lot of reuse out of creating these constraint environments within those Python modeling environments. And so all of that is to say, like in the long run of building out TestFit, we're building a constraint environment. And all we do is we generate one static design from the user's inputs. And that's the level of innovation that we're bringing to the industry right now, is just generating one good good design option. Rather than 50 or 100. Well, rather than 10 billion, like 10 billion, you know, like... Look, like these are people with jobs, and like we want to actually get something useful out of TestFit. Mm. So I don't think I've ever seen somebody throw something into a refinery and you get like a normal apartment building out of it. You know, like the things that we need to optimize are normal, typical commodity buildings on this planet. And it seems like we're left with only the Norman Fosters of the world really optimizing, you know, the shape of form. So, you know, democratizing these tools is the name of the game, and we're doing that. I suppose that's another thing, just pick up on democratizing. You know, look, as soon as people hear that, you, you sort of imagine the price of something coming down. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, like as things get democratized, that tends tends to be what happens. The price gets lower anyway. And, uh, but obviously you... you you're reaching a much broader market. We had a previous conversation on the podcast, and we were talking about just how little of the the built environment is actually touched by architects. So it's, it's, it's a very low percentage. So there's a lot of building going on or, or uh, happening or even being renovated, changed, etc. But that's not involving architects, mainly because maybe, maybe a lot of people see architecture as a kind of elitist service and um you know it absolutely is though i mean yeah. you know the, the people that can afford to pay for the services of the architect 
are the people that can pay to build the most expensive structures that mankind has ever, you know, come up with. Yeah. Like buildings, buildings are not cheap. Yeah, a 300 unit apartment building, which is like roughly the size of the ideal real estate deal, those are 30, 40, 50 million dollars. You know, like people that can afford to hire an architect, these are people that managing lots of money, moving money around, investing vast sums of money. It's a very elitist uh, industry. And people that endeavor to bring architecture to the least of these like 100 fold studios of a firm out in uh, Montana that tries to basically democratize design by, by giving it away for free. Those are the, the, the real winners I think in the architecture community, like people that are really pushing what architecture can do for all mankind. And I'm really interested in that, that part of our business, you know, I feel like, yeah, Architecture for, for Humanity is a really great organization. It's pretty inspiring, and I would love to get involved more in, in organizations like that. But at the same time, like we have housing problems. We have all kinds of problems. I'm sure while it is an elitist sort of community of people that, that, that tap into architects, architects still can go out and find their own real estate deals. Like We can still enact lots of change on the industry by ourselves. I just feel like we lack a little bit of confidence to do it. It's almost like open sourcing architecture. I know uh, John is a great proponent of open sourcing things. <laughs> I, I suppose whatever, whatever, whenever we start talking about democratizing services or products and open sourcing, yeah, you know, the question always comes to me: like, how do people make a living then? Because I mean, you still have to make a living out of that. Yeah, the, the free-to-use and free-to-play world is, like, ad-driven, ad right? So there's really not volume in the AEC world for you to have free-to-use. I just – I don't know if it's in the cards, right? Test fits very niche software. Like, it would be very hard to build something as powerful and credible as TestFit at night and on the weekends, the purpose of building a software company is to build and maintain software. And when I say maintain, maintain software, I mean like maintain, like iron out bugs, just keep the code functioning. Software is not a, you build the hammer and you ship it and the hammer, you know, is going to stay uh, stable. There's some things in the hammer that we haven't, haven't found out about yet. With open source software, you get what you pay for which is oftentimes developers that lose interest in the process or you know, the thing is like firms that build their own, their own software, they have to understand that you're not only endeavoring to build the software, but you're also endeavoring to maintain that code base from now until the end of time. So it's, there's an ongoing cost when you decide to develop your own software. And you committed to servicing your customers and keeping them happy. And John, Bring you in, and because I know you have some strong ideas about open sourcing. And for me, open source is just a tool that is used by a business, uh, the same as any other tool. For me, when I consider open sourcing, I am looking at the adoptability of that software and. How I like to think about it is the speed of getting past that initial stage where users can adopt your software because the barriers are lower and they can also give you that feedback faster. 
to tell you whether you're doing something right or you're doing something wrong. So it really fast forwards that that entire process. One thing that I would encourage anyone that's listening um, that is thinking about open source and open source business is this concept of an open core software um, is where business would have the core open source, but they would provide that the uh, crust, if you like, um, of that as an enterprise offering of that software. So if you look at, for example, um, a well-known software in our industry and someone we had on last last week's podcast and someone you know uh, pretty well, Clifton, you might tell us about uh, your relationship later with is Inkyo of Hyper. So they have an open core business model. They have an open source software. Yes, you can take it, you can run it yourself, you can extend it, you can adopt it, you can look at all the security. Uh, well, uh, not the security, but you could look at the vulnerabilities of the software, etc. You can take that, you can run it on your own servers. But to operate that software and to, to run it or to, to deploy it, you need to have the in-house expertise. And that's where the gap is in most AEC companies. So you've like, you've architecture firms, engineering firms, construction firms, all able to pick up this software. They're able to use the software so that it's functional. It shows, shows off what the software can do. But when you want to use that software on a, a live project, you don't want it running on your structural engineer's computer where he doesn't know how to manage, make a sustainable uh, service out of that piece of software. You want to actually go to the source, i.e. in this case, Hyper, and ask them to run it for you. And that's where they come in with, with their with their service. I think that the word democratization is I don't really understand that. I don't think that. I think that yes, a software it can it can be commoditized, but democratized is. I don't know. It's a bit subjective uh, how how you interpret that word. Um, and it's not, not, it's not it's not it's not that bad. I mean, you know, here here's here's one example. Company recently got acquired by another large company. In order to access their suite of of tools. You had to pay anywhere between ten and thirty thousand uh, dollars to look at uh, one site with one building on it. So that doesn't like in my mind, that's the opposite of democratization. Like people can't afford to use that. That's insane. Now, on the yeah. other end of the spectrum is democratizing uh, the code base so that other people can use the code base. I'm not talking about that. Like in architecture you have 50% of firms that haven't even started using BIM yet. So there's this, there's a community in the AEC world that is very innovative, bleeding edge, very far ahead. And, you know, that's high part. Like they're, they're just, they're two or three years ahead, I think, uh, in terms of the vision. But what I'm disrupting at TestFit is people using CAD, people still in 2D workflows, people still on trace paper. Like, I think people have failed to realize that we haven't even innovated that yet. So, you know, we can have a discussion about, like, what the world will look like in 10 years and how important open sourcing software will be for the future businesses that have to compete with other businesses that are, are building their own proprietary high par frameworks. I mean, if, look, if I was an architecture firm right now today, probably what I'd do is hire an engineer and, and get 
developing, you know, on some kind of platform. Most firms are not there yet, John. They're just not. They're not even thinking about capturing their intelligence and deploying it. You know, they're they're thinking, how do I win the next deal to get, you know, a $400,000 CD set fee? Mm. Uh, So so I can get people to sit down and draw out parking stalls and count them manually. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like, look, my relationship with Ian's great. You know, I want them to succeed. They want us to succeed. We we don't. There's not enough innovation in this industry for us to not support one another. But the the typical small firm, they're not going to have a high power developer on their team. You know, that's yeah. that's where having you know being able to buy it, a license to test with super simple. So, like, would you agree that TestFish is essentially? Um, a custom developed solution for for businesses to like or will architecture architecture engineering firms it's just uh, it's, box, it's look, ready to go it, specific yeah it's 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 the first desktop purpose built generative design tool for buildings i mean it, it's the first one and been building this thing for three and a half years real life people use testfit we generated around 40,000 apartment buildings last year in the application, you know, we're having vast impact on high density multifamily innovation, which is very niche, right? So how do we how do we take this bit of innovation that we've already been able to accomplish, apply it to more building types, apply it to broader industry? That's really my mission right now. It's not how do I unseat Revit or you know how how do we uh, recreate BIM in a new you know, I think everybody's kind of looking for what's after BIM. That's not big. Not, not really our mission. You know, we're just trying to get architects to stop counting parking stalls. <laughs> so would you say that's part of your success is that you you focus on a very specific problem? You know, like you didn't sort of yep. set out to change the world. Like you identified because of your own work a very specific problem and you set out to conquer that. And now you're sort of taking that to the next level. So you went from parking stalls to apartment layouts to office layouts, and you're sort of growing it incrementally. Yeah, like, yeah, um, yeah. So, so you know, the, the advice I gave John a long time ago still rings true, I think, right? Which is you you find one customer and you build a product for them and you listen to them and they tell you what they want changed. We're no different today. Like, if I could say, like, the one functioning part of our startup that I know works really well is this amount of feedback that we're getting, you know, the top of the funnel, this loop, the feedback loop that we have with our customers. But there's so many different requests for so many different, you know, reasons and track hundreds of these things in Trello. And eventually you kind of come up with a consensus of, like, what your customer base wants as the next sort of feature that you build. Uh, so that's that's how we've approached TestFit is that that method. Whereas I think other other startups they they kind of plan out you know maybe a whole framework that they have to build, and then they build that and then they go to market. We were a little bit different. Did you say you spent enough time in the industry as an architect to really experience the frustration? I mean, is that helping you as well? Like what it sounds like is your the start of your product anyway came from a a genuine frustration yeah. that was plaguing you and potentially everyone 
like you in in that in the industry and as you've worked with different customers now i think you've probably because you're working with customers getting a much more broader view than you did when you were an architect uh, of some of the frustrations and things that are going on like what are the big things at the moment that are you know you you see in the industry that are frustrating you and your customers and uh, like to solve i think the main the main frustration right now is the tech stack is antiquated most firms are using. So, like, you know, we built TestFit to be very fast, and you can go through 10,000 different designs, you know, like in five minutes. And it's a really great user experience. Like, it's keeping up with the architect's brain, like what's in their head, finally something that can can keep up. Which tech stack are you talking about, the I'd say I'm just traditional BIM. It's slow. Uh, it's, it's big. It's heavy. It takes forever. You know, you draw a wall and you have to wait 10 seconds for it to, to get drawn. Like it's very bad latency. My first experience in, in modern BIM was terrible. Yeah. It was to place plastic wall guards on about half of a million square feet, 50,000 square meter hospital building. You know, and you'd place the wall guard and then you'd wait 10 minutes for the whole thing to regenerate and then you know, so I think people are, are frustrated with, like, it's sluggish and it's time to be quicker. Uh, and so, you know, people working in TestFit, they love it because it's very fast. It's very responsive. So that, that I think, is, is one of the core frustrations with them. It's not that it doesn't do everything. It, it almost does do everything. It's just that it's slow. So if you can get the speed and the feature set, I think people will be very happy. Are you following anyone who's sort of working on that problem, or do you see anything? These people are taking the next step. I mean, the likes of Hypar, but others maybe. Yeah, I think Hypar is definitely like in terms of people that are innovating BIM itself. Hypar is probably the, the the company to watch. You know, of course, they understand the problem at a very intimate level. You know, the, the AUC toolkit they've got right. So if I you know, thinking of future workflows and test it, I can generate my feasibility study, push it in high part to get the BIM model. And then, you know, you're not even touching an Autodesk ecosystem, right? So the future is very bright, right? For, for these tools to work together, I think. But BIM in the traditional sense, it's, it's too heavy. It's not editable from a high level. It's, you know, if I want to move a whole wing of a building, it's not three clicks, you know, it's like significant more work. So yeah, that's that's where I'm. That's where my head's at in terms of innovation. You know, that's is that is that the way TestFit are thinking as well? Because we've had other conversations on the podcast where people saying, you know, the traditional approach to software in AEC was try and put all the functions into one, cram all the functions into one desktop application. It becomes this massive behemoth thing. Uh But you know, like when you look at other. Other things, people are splitting it up. So like if you look at your phone, everything, everything's an app, and you know, the app only does one thing. But the app, that app talks to another app, and the sort of connected um, uh, ecosystem of apps, if you like. I mean, yeah, is that the way you yeah. think? Like TestFit is an app that eventually would plug into. Yeah, um, it's no. I mean, it's just it's plugging into a broader API ecosystem. What I mean, what I mean by that is, with an API, you could. You could ship data. Like, we're already using one with Orton Tomasetti. They're a structural engineer. They have some pretty amazing um, API-based uh, technology that they use internally. 
and we were able to convince them to give us access to a column sizing API. And so within TestFit, all we do is we generate a model, we take an analytical model, we send it to Thornton Tomasetti, and they send us back structural columns. That right there, ladies and gentlemen, is the future, is coordination meetings, you know, just via API using some kind of AI. I try to make a big deal about it, but... Uh, you know, I don't think people know what they're looking at when they see that, right? It's a little bit wild and hard to understand, but that's the future is these API connections between now all of a sudden you can work with services firms that are actually maintaining uh, software. You know, like there, there's other firms out there that, that are building really great technology and we've spun up some conversations with them to see if they'd want to include their intelligence into the test of it configurator. Um, That's fascinating. So it's just yeah, as you mentioned those columns. So you like previously, you know, the engineer would go for two weeks, you know, do some calculations, draw something up, you know, come back at the next meeting. Yeah, these are the column sizes, and that's like, screwed up your whole parking layout. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and, right? <laughs> you know, then, it's a, and then it's another two weeks for the architect to go away and to reconfigure the parking layout to 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 work with the columns, and uh, you know, like say so four weeks down the line, and what you've just described there, presumably that's hours or days or something, rather than weeks and months. Right, and it, and it's totally unnecessary too. Like the Consultant one has built this whole thing on trace paper and they scan it in and send it via PDF to consultant two. They recreate the whole damn thing in CAD and then they do their sizing. And then consultant three might be able to, or might only know how to do the specific task in Revit. So they're going to recreate the whole thing in Revit to do, you know, duct layouts or something. So the, there is not a, interoperable sort of ecosystem out there that takes into account this mixed media approach that our industry has, uh, which is why we, which is why it's so hard to innovate PDFs. I mean, they're just reliable. Just in terms of giving some advice to the, the AC hive community of innovators. So like, I think it's quite clear from what you're saying, there's a desperate need for people to innovate in this sector. Um, we need more innovators. I think you, you mentioned there. But I suppose a lot of people would be listening and thinking, well, you know, I have this idea, but it sounds like such a simple idea. And I think the other thing that's come across really strongly from your message is it sounds like a simple idea, but it's actually a very complex problem. And, you know, the the fact that you've brought a solution to the market to solve that problem, you call it a niche problem, but it's it's, it's probably a problem that's occurring all across the world in every architectural office uh, to some degree. Yeah. So it's probably less niche than you imagine. <laughs> um, I think I think I I think I called Testbit niche because not every firm, you know, like if you're using Revit as your documentation tool, you're going to have 15, you know, licenses to that. Like, right, it's going to be very important to your firm. But TestFit is, you know, maybe a single license, maybe two licenses, maybe three if it's a pretty big shop. But the, the group of people in firms doing feasibility is small compared to people doing documentation. So it's not massive volume, but... You know, this is how I think we get in with firms, right? We start with feasibility. And and if, if the feedback leads us into SDs, then we're going to start doing things that you would see in SDs. And 
If it gets, hey, it'd be handy if we actually didn't have to build the whole BIM model. You know, can we just do it in here? Like points in time, we're going to get customer feedback. And if customer feedback is, hey, we actually like to use this instead of Revit, you know, then, then it's like, okay, it's on, right? It's time to, it's time to build out a whole slew of BIM tools or, more practically, we're just going to go call Ian and say, hey, Ian, how do we work together so that you can handle the BIM side of, of, of building design? Yeah. And that's the future ecosystem, right, is is creating these bridges between these different companies with the API and, you know, architects, developers, general contractors, people like John, like y'all all are partic- participating in that broader ecosystem, um, and just because someone's like not open sourcing their their software, they're very hard uh, written, you know, like tested not open sourcing it. Because let me tell you, getting to where we have gotten right now has been one hell of a journey. And probably more than the open sourcing is the fact the API is probably more important. That you, yeah, like I want I want to get to a point. <laughs> right, I want to get to a point where we can sell Tesla as an API. And have it stable, have it be a cornerstone. Like, look at Mapbox. It's like a cornerstone of the GIS environment. Like, what if there's an API out there that you can reliably get parking structures out of pretty quickly? That's that's where my head's at, is where we're headed, right? Like, would your advice to innovators out there be, A, there's lots of small niche problems that need tackling, so we need more innovators, we need so we need more people to step up to stop thinking about the idea and do something about it. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, absolutely. And then, yep, go for it. And, like, and, you, how, yeah. and how do you go? Failure, about it? failure. Like, it, it's only going to end in one of two ways: failure or success. Right. So you have a fifty percent shot. Let's go. And if you fail, you <laughs> probably learn something. Yeah. Well, I'd like to chip in there with that that advice. Uh, that you gave me all those years ago, Clifton. Find a find a customer or find a problem that a customer has, or find a find a problem that someone has and solve it. Um, I mean that's that's the key to it, right? Well, it's it's solving it with this manic sort of look in your eye, of like I never like Important. I never want you to ever have to do parking salt. You know, like like if you if you're not religiously anti the problem that you're solving. Like, I just don't think you'll be successful in the startup world, right? Like Mm -hmm. it, you have to be somewhat passionate about solving this problem. And, you know, there's some startup founders that are driven by money and they want to make a lot of money. Uh, you know, Ryan and I are not that, uh, we would have picked a different, and if you want to make a lot of money, pick a different industry. Right. But I'm driven by when people use my product and they say, holy crap, I never have to count parking stalls again. Like, that's my joy, right? And so that you know, that's the currency that you live by is is those little stories. And you know, don't don't just sit around and affirm. You have an idea. Don't just sit there. Like, go build it. Go find people that you can build it with. Uh, don't don't be uh, – don't fall into the, into the well of, oh, I have to learn Dynamo in order to be successful at my job. Like – it's a lie. If you have an idea, there are there are software developers out there that you can work with to to solve problems. Like Tesla would not have been built if I didn't have a software engineer uh, as a co-founder. So there is lots of things you can do just by bringing your ideas to the table. Just showing up is a is a huge part of of success, right? And you know, unfortunately, I've failed to show up a few times, but uh, 
you know, moving forward, just showing up is most of what success is. And I, and I suppose that picking up on that, that's what we're trying to do with the AEC Hive is build this community, you know, from around the world. Because what we've seen is people doing fantastic things in different parts of the world, but it's, it's almost like little pockets, you know, and no, nobody knows about it. As you said, bring the ideas to the table. Like we want to be the table where people can bring their ideas and connect with other people that might help them with that idea. You know, and that, that would be the idea of the community that you making these sort of connections because nobody's going to develop something by themselves. You always need help. You know, you needed your, your co-founder who had expertise that you didn't have to realize this, this dream of never having to count parking stalls again. <laughs> Ironically, you've probably seen more parking stalls in, in the last few years than you probably oh, ever man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's great. You get you get customers, uh, customer feedback. You know, so I was drawing a, a, a thirty acre site with seventeen thousand parking stalls, and testbits started getting a little clunky. And you're like, well, have you thought of not drawing that many parking stalls? <laughs> but it's always great. It's always great when you get feedback like that because the software didn't crash. It just yeah. ran into a performance limitation, which means oh my gosh, we could just have to look at performance, you know, work a little bit on that. And then we can now support, you know, even more massive sites and stuff. So, and they probably forgot that it took them two weeks to draw it previously. (laughs) (laughs) And now they have to wait an extra 10 minutes. Any look, we're running up to the hour now, John, any further things you want to ask or no, nothing now. I think I've uh, got my fix of generative design for one day. Um, so I wish Clifton all the best in building out TestFit and I look forward to seeing future success and more problems in the AEC um, ecosystem being solved by your great solutions. So good luck with that and thanks for sharing your insights with the AEC Hive community. Yeah, th- thank you all for inviting me. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to I'm working on a, a post. Uh, I'm going to post some original content, if you will, to, to the Hive. So cool. um, look out for that in the, in the coming weeks. Awesome. Looking forward to that. Yeah, we. I mean, it's, it's the platform is quite new, but it's starting to get some traction, and um, you know, we're really excited about it. Just sharing what great people like TestFit and others are doing around the world uh, to <laughs> yeah. a broader audience. It's, it's really interesting. And I think what I got out of today was just this idea, it's a, and it seems to be a recurring theme on a number of podcasts that's, that of almost breaking up the functions and tools into little apps, you know, interconnected, as one, one of our speakers called it, the Internet of Construction, yeah. uh, which is a fantastic idea that we get away from these monolithic programs People use only about 5% of its features, but pay for 100% of <laughs> the features that they don't use. So, yeah. And, um, yeah, it's, it, the, the future is, is really, I think, how do we wire these different APIs together to get the, the result that we want more than it is how do we click these specific buttons in this, in this software, you know, to get what we, where we need to go. So maybe I'll, I'll end on that. You know, it's this, interconnected ecosystem it's super weird it's going to be uncomfortable it's going to be very disruptive architects are not going to like it but hey we're headed that direction i think architects will like it because it'll take 
take away a lot of the mundane and tedious tasks, which, which look, like, to be honest, who, who enjoys that anyway? Humans have a, have an innate fear of the unknown, right? So I'm, I'm really just saying, like, yeah. because it's going to be new and an unknown, like, there's going to be just feedback. There's going to be resistance to it. Yeah. And that's, yeah. you know, that's our, that's our challenge, I think, as innovators is to convince the industry, hey, this is a better direction. Maybe we'll end on that. <laughs> yeah. Very good. So look from my side, Clifton, thanks very much. I really appreciate your time to share what you guys are doing. I think it's fantastic. Uh, keep doing it and, um, we'll hopefully keep talking to you. I look forward to your post on the AC Hive and hope you have a great day. Thank you. Cheers.